Keep it locked. It's the A Square Podcast. That's right. That's right. That's right. What up, baby? Hey, this K Kemp, and you rocking with the A Square Podcast. Be sure to click and subscribe. Cornbread. What up, dog? DJ Aaron. A Square Podcast. With information on entrance to the trade. Make sure you subscribe and share. Also, turn those notifications. A Square Podcast. Your boy DJ Aaron, alongside my brother, as always, Antonio, aka Cornbread. What up, baby? As always. For uh, I want to say you've been cornbread for since middle let me school. see 40, 41 years, 46 years. <laughs> you've been cornbread, and, and, and well. it don't stop. <laughs> so here we are with another one of A Square Podcast interviews. Antonio, uh, why don't you introduce the guest, man? Absolutely. Um, so welcome uh, back to the A Square Podcast to the listeners out there. Uh, there's certain people that they accomplish something so impossible in my brain i'm like that's possible like we could do that what is that real you know kind of more when barack obama won, won the presidency right it's like what right that's real uh tiger woods <laughs> playing golf cooking everybody but this young lady that we have on today when i was growing up she did one of those feats man and so we'll get into what she did but erica harrell welcome to the a square podcast thank you for having me i'm delighted to be here absolutely go ahead antonio yeah, so um, we definitely want to know, kind of uh, tell the listeners out there a little bit about yourself, you know, kind of where you grew up, um, what were some of your hobbies, things like that, and then we'll get into all the, the good stuff after that. Okay, excellent. Well, I was born and raised in Champaign-Urbana, the oldest of four, so I definitely have... Uh, that personality, my younger siblings say that I was bossy. I like to call myself a natural leader, but we'll let that be up for debate. I was, although everyone in my family is very sports oriented and athletically inclined, I enjoy watching sports, but I don't have that athletic gene myself. My only athletic accomplishment was on the eighth grade girls basketball team, scoring a basket for the wrong team. So that was sort of... <laughs> I still have not been able to live that down, so I embrace it as uh, God opens certain doors and God closes certain <laughs> doors. So maybe that was God closing my door. Don't but feel I, bad about that because it literally just happened last night in an NBA game. In an yeah. NBA game, yeah. it happened. So don't feel bad. Okay, well then maybe I should. I cut my athletic career prematurely short. I should have <laughs> stayed with it. But I was involved in writing music. I took voice lessons. I was involved in choir, drama. So I I had great parents who encouraged all of us to be involved in everything and try to find our passion. I love it. Um, and like I said- And I, I went to Urbana High School. That's important. That no is Tigers. Important. <laughs> That's where I met, um, I think the third one, your sister, and then, uh, and then yes. obviously Nick Harold, you know, so I, I was on several teams with him. So we appreciate you coming on the A-Square podcast. Now, one of those things that you accomplished, you accomplished a lot in your life, man, but one that, that I really wanted to get you on this podcast with, especially in the times that we're in now of, you, you showed hope you know, and, and, and endurance and, and was in 2002, um, you won Miss Illinois. And then in, what, in 2003, you won Miss America. Is that correct? I want, so I was crowned Miss America 2003 in September of 2002. So it's sort of confusing the way they do the dates, but yes, I was crowned Miss America 2003. And it was one of the most surreal experiences of my life because I had not grown up doing pageants. I entered 
the, the pageant system because I needed to earn money to pay for Scott for college. Uh, as I mentioned, I didn't have athletic scholarships as a venue or opportunity <laughs> for me. Right. And I saw that there were scholarship opportunities available in the program. And so I had been accepted to Harvard Law School, which was my dream school, but I did not have the funds to pay for it. And an advisor at the University of Illinois said, what if you try to enter that pageant one last time and see if you can win it all and see if that's how you can pay for Harvard Law School. So I called Harvard Law School and said, if I become Miss America this year, would you hold my seat? And they said, sure, because I think they were thinking, you're not <laughs> yeah. going to become Miss yeah, America. Right. There's really going to be no seat to hold. Right. We'll see you in September. Right. So then I was proud Miss Illinois. And I called them again to make sure, is my seat still secure? Because I did not want to take the LSAT, the law school admissions test again. They said yes. And then I entered the pageant, won Miss America 2003, and won enough wow. scholarships and speaking fees to be able to graduate completely debt-free from Harvard Law School in 2007. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> that is really amazing. So no pageants early. Like you always hear, every time you hear about Miss America, uh, this, that, you hear about how much they went through and all the trials and tribulations from being from two or three years old, you know, <laughs> and then you get into it with a goal of, of, of not even necessarily, you know, you didn't, you didn't grow up wanting to be Miss America or anything like that. So, I mean, how did this really come about? Like once you, once you actually got there and the moment happened, it kind of explained that, that feeling it, the moment itself, I, I tend to be someone who's very destination oriented. So I sometimes forget to pause and take it all in. But as I was standing up there and it came down to the final two, I was able to think, take this moment in for better or for worse, because you want to remember what it felt like. Right. And so the young woman who was standing next to me was Miss Alabama. We were the final two holding hands in that cliche way that you see on TV. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I just, I'm, I'm a person of faith. And so oftentimes in life, I'd always prayed that God would have happened what I wanted to happen. But I felt real peace in that moment. And I just said, whatever your best will is for my life, may it be done. And when they announced that she was the first runner up, which made me by default Miss America, it just felt like the embodiment of everything that I had ever worked for in life, every door that had previously been closed. And it was such an adrenaline rush. I can't really even describe mm -hmm. it accurately, but it was sort of that perfect moment where you feel that everything culminates in exactly the way you want it. And then as I was walking down the runway, they allowed both of my parents to come up on wow. stage. And seeing their faces, they had tears in their eyes. They were overjoyed. Um, I think it's just because they felt like, wow, we don't have to pay for law school. <laughs> pay for that. It was just one of those perfect moments in time. And I felt so privileged and blessed because so many people are talented and work hard and just never get that opportunity to live mm -hmm. out their dream. And the older I get, the more I realize what a blessing it is to actually get the experience to live out your dream. So talk to us a little bit about, excuse me, you want to go? Good. 
I was just gonna say, talk to us about the preparation, like the competition, the lead up, like what what you had to go through in order to even get what is like considered, you know, or what yes. like how does that work? So I I competed in college. So I won Miss Illinois on my third try. So I competed a couple of times and I was a finalist in Miss Illinois, but didn't advance beyond then. But the once I became Miss Illinois, I approached preparing for Miss America like a job because I knew that being first runner up was not going to be sufficient to pay for law school. I needed to get about $150,000 to be able to pay for that. And so there was, I actually had to start doing some athletic events to be able to prepare for the competition. So I was running four and five miles a day, hating every single moment of it. That endorphin feeling that people talk about, I never experienced it. But the real aspect of the competition is your interview. And so 40% of your score is based on interview, 30% is based on talent. And then there are the kind of onstage parts of the competition. My talent, I sang an aria from the opera Carmen. So I worked with my voice teacher to make sure that we cut the music down to be interesting, entertaining. I had to work on the French for that because it's habanera. And then in terms of preparing for interview, the big component of that is your platform. And my platform was preventing youth violence and bullying. And I wanted to put together the kind of national platform where I could walk into the judge's room and say, I am ready to make an impact on the country in terms of preventing youth violence and bullying. You're the only thing standing in my way. If you give me this opportunity, I can make an impact. And I chose that platform because when I was a freshman in high school, I was the victim of severe racial and sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. It escalated all the way to death threats and I ultimately had to transfer to a different high school. And that experience of being marginalized and feeling as if I didn't have an advocate made me want to become an attorney, which is why I chose that path. But it also made me want to make a difference on a national level with that platform. I wanted to be able to go into schools all around the country and say, regardless of what people have said about you, you are not defined by the worst names you are called. You can define yourself on your own terms. And that was definitely um, my next question. I know that was what you were running on um, for becoming Miss America. Um, so do you feel like you were that catalyst? Like young kids or people in high school, middle school will come up to you and say, thank you. Or do you think that you got backlash for being that spokesperson? And then my question after that is, has it changed? Has bullying, you know, there's cyber bullies now, there's Twitter fingers, all this stuff, you know, going on. <laughs> just so Twitter you, warriors man, are very active. Crazy. So I just want to know if you think it's getting better, worse, or, you know, things that have changed because of technology too. When I adopted that as my platform, people did not take it seriously as an issue. I remember right after I won, they had booked whoever was going to be the next Miss America on this national talk show. And I was sitting in the green room ready to go on and someone prepped me. They said, just so you know, the host really hates your platform. He thinks that preventing bullying is soft and we just need to teach kids to not be weak. 
It's like, that's great. That's wonderful to hear that that's how he feels. But I went on there and tried to explain, this is about adults protecting young people. This is about making sure that they have access to education and don't have to worry about other people's negativity and toxicity, preventing them from being getting, getting the education that they are entitled to. It's also about preventing kids from dealing with issues of depression and eating disorders and suicide because studies show that there's a correlation to those things. And so by the end of the interview, I think he felt foolish recognizing how he had this false perception of what this was about. And I was able during that time to speak to over 100,000 students about bullying and standing up for each other and being allies I was able to advocate for anti-harassment legislation that would require schools to have policies to protect students and to have curricula to encourage them to stand up for each other. And one of the things that I've seen is the biggest change is that over time, nobody would think we should just dismiss the issue of bullying. It's still very prevalent, and I would definitely want to talk about the cyberbullying issue, but I think the biggest change is there's a recognition among adults that this is their responsibility, if you're an educator, to take it seriously, and that we no longer think it's just an adolescent rite of passage. It's something that we owe to young people to stand up for them. And unfortunately, the advent of technology has really empowered kids to almost engage in bullying 24 hours a day because before social media things that happened at school could stay at school and at least a young person who was being bullied could come home and feel at least some sort of safe haven now you see just terrible targeting of young people on social media and you see both parents and schools sometimes saying not my problem and what I would like people to recognize is that it's everyone's problem that we have to take seriously the things that are happening online because it's not just a virtual world for young people who spend their time online that's their real world and we have to take it just as seriously especially a lot of the middle school and high school shootings man you know, probably 80 or 90% of that is because of bullying. The, the bullying is just so pervasive. And the sad part is that in hindsight, we can usually look back and see, oh, there were signs. Why were they missed? And one of the messages I had to schools was that they needed to be proactive in making sure there was at least an adult who was keeping track of 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 all children. There shouldn't be children who just fall through the safety net. At the beginning of the year, the the staff should sort of divide up the students and make sure that there's a teacher who feels sort of responsible to take notice of, oh, this child looks withdrawn in class, or this child um, has been missing, or various other factors, because it just shouldn't be the case that kids can slip through the cracks and that after the fact, we go back and look for the signs. So going forward, obviously this is a, a huge passion of yours. You can tell by, I mean, I could just, I feel, I feel that energy from you. Uh, so going forward, understanding the 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 technology and all this stuff that's going forward. What is your main goal going forward to help like bring this, bring all this stuff down? You know, because the the all of the social media that's out there, the new platforms, the TikTok, you know, you got this and there is so much stuff. I just feel like, you know, uh, a mental break 
from all this stuff, a daily mental break or something like that. It's like what we really need. But going forward, what would you like to do? I think that we have to proactively teach young people how to be responsible consumers of this of right. these platforms and parents have to educate themselves about them. You can't just say, Oh, Snapchat. I don't understand it. Or TikTok, I don't understand it. If you're a parent, you need to make it your goal to understand it. Now you don't have to post TikTok videos of yourself. Nobody's saying you need to use the platform that way. Right. In fact, right. your kids wouldn't want you to do that, but you have to understand how the platform works because you need to be able to a have your kids passwords you need to see what kind of direct messages that they are receiving. Because one thing we haven't talked about yet is it's not just kids who use it to target other kids. It's adults who target kids in right. predatory ways. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we often see is adults who target young people and try to get them to send suggestive photos and then can use that material to blackmail them. So parents have to be able to educate themselves so they can educate their kids and say, there's no topic off limit. If you feel like you made a mistake and sent someone photos, you need to come and talk to me so we can take this to the police and get you help and not have you in a situation where you're trying to deal with this by yourself. I also talk to young people about the issue of viewing what you do on social media as branding, because I think you have to use language that's going to appeal to them. Yeah. With recruiting for sports, for example, being wow. a lot of it happens online. You see young people posting their videos, their stats, employers look at people's social media. You need right. to recognize that what you put out there, what you like, the videos you share, that's your personal brand. So we'll even take morality out of it. It's when people look at your page, what is it that you want them to know you stand for? What are those component values and traits you want people to say, that person is the kind of person I want to recruit to my team, or that person's the kind of person I want to have in my organization? Um, so I have another question about um, Miss America, and then it'll lead into the main another topic that I really want you to, to you know, get your opinion on. So if you win um, Miss USA, are you qualified for Miss Universe or are those separate things? That's a great question. They are two separate systems. Okay. So the Miss USA organization is part of the Miss Universe pageant. So if you if you're Miss USA, you then compete at Miss Universe. At Miss America, it's a different system. So once you're Miss America, you're done. You don't have to compete against other countries. You can okay. declare yourself world champion if you right. want. Okay. All right. Did so, you want to? Did you think about it? Was it? <laughs> I mean, did it did it cross your mind, or were you just like, you know what? Harvard text like, let's this? go, let's get it. Let's get it. <laughs> I, I, I was very goal-oriented oriented in terms of what I wanted to achieve with it. And it's sort of one of those walkout home runs. You're not looking for extra innings if you don't have to go back in. <laughs> okay, I got you. I got you. Absolutely. So um, former Miss USA, um, unfortunately, Chesley, is right. it Christ? I, I don't know. How to, Chris, Christ? Chesley Christ. Christ, yes. okay. Um, so, you know, she... It just came out that, you know, it uh, looks like the autopsy said that she committed suicide, right? And this just happened. Um, so I would love to get your opinion on that. And then obviously nobody knows what's going on with anybody, right? It, right. Everything can look glorious on the outside, but inside, you don't know if she was getting bullied or if she wasn't happy with whatever it was. So uh, speak a little bit about maybe the pressures of being set, put on a pedestal, but right. then you're not really not going through it. Her her death has 
rocked the pageant community in ways I have not seen. I've had so many conversations with other national title holders and state title holders this past week, where people are just trying to make sense of her experience, and then also trying to make sense of their own experience. Right. And she wrote, Chesley wrote a really powerful essay in Allure magazine about a year ago that I would encourage people to, to read. And in that essay, she talks about some of the experiences she faced. She was targeted in cyberbullying, people saying she was too old to have won, people targeting her appearance, which is crazy because she's a stunningly beautiful woman. And people threatening and being very vindictive towards her. She also talked about the pressure of trying to appear perfect. And then that sense of feeling that you always have to top yourself in terms of accomplishment mm -hmm. and feeling almost exhausted by the sense of it's never enough and the achievements itself don't bring the kind of satisfaction and contentment. And I think a lot of people who are involved in pageants or any kind of competitive environment can probably relate to aspects of that, of feeling defined by both your achievements and then feeling that somehow you have to keep topping yourself or that you're disappointing other people if you don't. And some of the conversations I've just had with people over this past week is just how important it is to reach out proactively to people to see how they're doing. Yeah. And just because you see people posting these filtered, beautiful pictures mm -hmm. on social media, don't assume that their life is content and don't assume that they're in a good place. Um, just ask people, how are you doing? And I think we need to change the way we engage with each other. Instead of always asking people, well, what's next for you? Ask people, how are you doing? Are you working on something you find interesting? So we can start to value people, not just on what they achieve, but valuing them for their attributes internally and showing real concern and compassion for people. But mental health issues are something that we have to talk about and we have to take away the stigma from people who want to say, you know what, I'm not in a good place and I do need help. That's an act of strength. It's not an act of weakness. Right. When, when can you, when do you, when can you turn it off? Cause I feel like that's what we all need to do. But in this particular industry where you guys are always looked at as beautiful all the time, you know, it's swimsuits, beautiful, all everything that has nothing yes. to do with your brand. You got to be in a it, swimsuit though. It don't matter <laughs> every time. So it's like, when and how do you mentally just turn it off, relax, and just don't worry about what other people think. How does that work? It's, it's really hard. Now I'll share with you something that happened to me recently. I, I was going to the grocery store and I thought, you know How what? How did I know that that was gonna happen? Right. <laughs> going, going to the grocery store. It's always, it's, it's everything in life. It's always on the grocery store. It, it always. And, and sometimes I feel a lot of pressure to always look you know, to have your makeup, your contouring done. And this particular day, I had just finished working out and I thought, I don't really want to do that. And it was pre-mask. So, you know, because now we can kind of hide behind our masks. It was pre-mask. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go out and, you know, I just need to get, <laughs> I need to get my vegetables and my, whatever my groceries are. So I was in the line ringing up. And this woman came up to me, she goes, did anyone ever tell you that you sort of look like Erica Harold? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, 
Well, and I thought, well, do I tell her that I am or because clearly she thinks that, in, <laughs> that I actually look a lot better than I do right now. And so I just said, well, you know, I do hear that from time to time. <laughs> but it, it was kind of that reality check of we do feel this sense of I need to go out. I need to have on my kind of Instagram filtered face and feeling like you're going to disappoint people. And I think we have to learn how to be okay if we do disappoint people. So it's not even a sense of, of telling ourselves, well, people will just love me for me. It's that next step of even if people aren't happy with what I'm doing, that's okay because I'm not defined by whether people love me in this moment or not. But it's, it's, it's a stressor that we all think about. And I know when we... The, in the pageant world, when you go back for those reunions, you're very well aware that people are looking to see who's put on weight, whose hair looks good, who's going downhill. And, I, and I'm using those phrases because those are the phrases right. that people will write on social media. They'll just kind of critique people. So one of the things I do is I am very active on social media, but I mute people very quickly. Yeah. If people add... If people add negative comments or things like that, I don't block people because I'm not going to give them the benefit of knowing they were blocked because people love to say, so-and-so blocked me. Yep. I just mute people. And there was somebody I had muted that had been saying lots of negative things. And I ran into them in some, some scenario. And I was nice to them because I was unaware of all the negative things that they had recently been saying. And I could see that they were really surprised. And I saw later that they had been trash talking me just the day before I ran into That's them. Crazy. But I don't want that as part of my world. But I also don't want to have to completely disengage for, from social media because so much of marketing, engaging, and influencing requires you to be active. So mute people, and you don't owe everybody a response who wants to say something negative. That's a fact. This is the A Square Podcast. Today, we got superhero Erica Harold on, so we appreciate you. Um, so we asked a lot of our guests that come on, and I want to obviously go with what you just said. So you tell us in the world how you're doing, you know, with COVID, mentally, physically, anything you want to want to know, like, how, how are you doing as a person? You know, I, this past year has been a tough year for me because I had COVID and then I had long COVID. Mm. And I had long COVID just for months and months and months. And what it did for me is took away a lot of my energy. So I had to dial back a lot of my activities and it was really tough because everybody was like, I'm done with COVID. And after my 14 days, I wanted to be done with COVID too. But I found that day 15 and 16, I didn't feel any better. And so I had to learn this past year how to pace myself, how to focus my energy on the things that were most important because I simply did not have the energy to do everything that I used to do. I'm a perfectionist. And what it also showed me was that perfectionism can sometimes be a useless virtue because it makes you work harder at things with actually no value added. And so some things that I thought, I don't have time to do this to my absolute best. I thought, it actually was just fine. I didn't need to spend another couple hours doing that. So that was a good lesson, but 
it was also an eye-opening experience for what it's like to deal with a chronic illness. And that's not an experience I had previously had. And my empathy for the ways we need to change the law to better accommodate people who deal with chronic illness has increased exponentially. But fortunately, I had lots of people to check in on me and to make sure that things were going well for me. But but it was it was definitely a struggle. And I have great empathy for for everyone who's in that boat right now. Yeah, um, I got one more question for the USA uh, contest, and then we can move on to what you you know current times. So I want to take you back to two thousand and three. Yes. My name is Steve Harvey. <laughs> I say Erica Harold. Congratulations. You walk out there, you cheering, there's confetti everywhere. You, you, you up there doing the Dougie and dancing with your family, crying, everything. You know, Nick Harold there running around. And then I say, oh, 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 Miss Alabama, let me holler at you over here. You won. Tell us what would happen if that happened to you, man. Oh, so when I've actually replayed that in my mind because that was my worst nightmare for at least the like month after I kept thinking, what if they tell me that there was a mistake in the scoring? Listen, I'm not going to lie and tell you that I'd say, you know what? Here's the crown back. No, I'm at that point in time. I viewed myself as a budding lawyer. You lost it. You lost it. Um, they would have had to sue me to get that crown yeah. back because All I would right. say, you know what? You know, the way the rules work, I won. If you messed up, that's on you. I've already put my deposit at Harvard. Um, if you want to award a second one, I'm happy to, I'm happy to be like there and participate like in that. But no, no. I'm not giving up the crown. I'm not giving up the scholarship money. Um, you're gonna have to take me to court to do that. So that's how it would have gone down for me. I love it. But I would have done it with a smile. <laughs> I love it. So after Harvard, um, what year did you graduate? 2007. 2007. Um, is that when you went into politics or you decided to stay? I went in law? right to law. And okay. so after, after, law school, I moved to Chicago and practiced law in Chicago for six years. And I did commercial litigation and other types of civil litigation, civil disputes. And then I moved back to Champaign-Urbana in 2013 to get involved in politics. I was still practicing law at the time, but I wanted to be able to do it from a place where I could also work on potentially setting up for a run for political office. Okay. What's what's some pros and cons of politics? Politics right now is very divisive and it's a very toxic environment. Okay. That said, we still need people who are willing to engage to try to advocate for change. And so I, I did run for attorney general in Illinois in 2017. And I ran because I wanted to improve issues of criminal justice reform. I wanted to address issues of sexual harassment and ethics reform. And I recognized that it was going to be a lot of negativity that gets directed towards you if you're running for office. You know, all the great, all the bad photos they find of you where they set it to <laughs> menacing music. Right, right. You just have to almost prep yourself <laughs> yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, but I firmly believe that 
the fact that an environment's negative doesn't mean that you completely disengage, so that you prepare yourself properly so that you can engage in a constructive way and try to make a difference. But it's, it's like not you, everyone. It's like you, 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 you want to help improve the world by stopping the, the bullying, but yes. then you went into politics, which is all bullying. That's all it is. That, that's what it appears to be. Even the people that are on the front lines, it's like they're, it's, they're on the front lines trying to show love to everybody and they're getting bullied. It's like, it's, it's, it's wild. It, it, I mean, it's what you just described it very, ac- I mean, very accurately, where you enter an environment as an adult where people are engaging in the exact behaviors that we tell kids they can't do. So, I mean, there was, it was so much cognitive dissonance where I would, I I was thinking back to all of the times I was in schools and I would tell kids, you can disagree agreeably. You can have different views with somebody, but that doesn't give you the, the right to call them names or to try to target them or bully them. But in politics, you actually you can raise money by bullying people. You, yeah. If you want to send out an email to your supporters and get people to send you money, if you call people names, you're more likely to get more money. If you want to put an ad on the air that's successful, if it's the more negative it is, the better it's going to do. And so I had personal boundaries in terms of what I was going to do and not do. I told my campaign team, I'm not going to say things that are untruthful about other people. I'm not going to kind of misrepresent their record, even if it hurts my campaign, because I don't believe that the ends justify the means. That's one of the mottos I live by. I think it's easy to delude yourself and say, I can do shady things to get myself to a good place, and then I will do good things. False. If you do shady things to get yourself to a place, you will continue to be a shady person and you will do shady things there. So either you figure out a way to navigate a system ethically or you don't, but you can't just allow yourself to say negative things about people that you know to be false or to do unethical things and tell yourself, but once I get there, then I'll save the world. Right. Now, this is this is something that I know a lot of people want to know. I'm one of them. Uh, when you see, let's say, political people online and or on TV and they're talking and they're saying all these negative things, maybe making up lies about you, uh, calling you any types of names, whatever it is, you see all that stuff on, on TV. <clears throat> and then you run into these people. Now... <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Now, Antonio knows this. Well, <laughs> back in the day, when we saw back people that said stuff about us, it, we we lived by the something called the on-site situation. That means <laughs> same 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 okay, I gotta hear this. I don't know about the on-site situation. We'll, we'll talk about that off offline. We'll talk about that offline. But like when you see somebody that said so many negative things about you and they're right there in the room with you. How do you approach that 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 situation? Like you obviously you want to be as professional as possible, but what do you what do you say? How do you, how does that how do you handle that? For me, it depends on the 
type of criticism that they have given. So if I have an opponent who is criticizing a policy of mine, I consider that to be fair game. And I don't take it personally because it's not personal. And I respect that they are a vigorous advocate for their position. So as long as their criticism is within what I consider to be the realm of appropriate political discourse, if I see them at a campaign event, it's going to be good because I'm going to be criticizing their policy position. I will be doing the same. And I've had situations where I'm sitting next to an opponent, somebody who had just put out a statement denouncing a policy, but we had a good conversation because we both come from a place of good faith. We, our disagreements are about policy, but at the end of the day, we both want to make things better for people. I can respect that and I will have a good conversation with you. That said, I've had situations where people have done things that I consider to be unnecessarily personal and not to be in good faith. And so I take sort of a third position. I'm not going to come up and be fake and phony to you. Like, oh, it's so good to see you because I, I don't respect what you've done and I'm not going to pretend it, but I'm going to call it out in real time. So I was in a debate with an opponent who in he had been saying negative things about my background, trying to suggest that the, because I was beating him in the polls and he was trying to suggest that people were supporting me because of the optics of supporting a black woman. And I find that offensive. And so during our debate, I called him out. I said, you're just mad because every single editorial board that has met with both of us has picked me. And every single group that has evaluated both of our qualifications has picked me. And so you are taking the easy route by trying to blame it on optics when you right. just don't have the qualifications for this job. Right. And so I, the way I handle people like that is I will call it out and put it in public and give them the opportunity to defend themselves. But I'm not for somebody like that who's trying to smear um, using kind of racism and sexism. I'm not going to go up and pretend that we're cool because I don't think that's cool. Absolutely. Um, and I want to segue that same racism, sexism, um, classism into the courtroom. <laughs> Um, so right. I would, I would love to know, you know, you are a lawyer. So how was your first day in court? You know, was you nervous? Was you, was you drinking all the water? Did you have to like, what was going <laughs> on through your head with that? And then obviously speak on, you know, those, those differences in the courtroom of, I'm sure you've seen good, bad, and ugly, but for the same laws, right. You know, I'm in law enforcement, so I see it all the time. Mm -hmm. The very first day I appeared in court, I was so nervous. I wrote everything out, including my name, because I thought, <laughs> I don't want the judge to say all lies. <laughs> I wrote out my name, the name of my client, just because in, it's different than just regular public speaking. You have somebody's financial or legal interest mm. in your hands, right. and you don't want to mess up. And so the first time you go before a judge, the weightiness of that responsibility is upon you and it's nerve wracking. Um, I enjoy that because I enjoy advocating for people, but there is always that element of anxiety of what's going to happen here. 
But I'm so glad you raised those, those issues of racism, sexism, classism, because that's really important to the work I do. I was appointed by the Illinois Supreme Court to the Committee on Equality, and I was also appointed to be a commissioner on the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. Nice. And both of those entities are designed to try to address bias that exists within Illinois' legal system and judiciary. And unfortunately, there is still a lot of racism and sexism and classism that prevents people from being able to have full access to justice. And especially as a Black woman, I find that, first of all, people tend to be more disrespectful to me. I had an event that was all lawyers, and I was there on behalf of my firm. And this man came in, and he shoved some papers in my hands. He goes, we need copies made of this. He never thought, oh, maybe this is an attorney. He just saw me and thought, oh, this is somebody who needs to be making copies. Like an assistant. Like you're right. somebody's assistant. You should have Kobe yeah. those in the trash. I'm like, yeah. Well, and, and, and the thing that was that bothered me was first of all even yeah. if i was an assistant the way he came to me was disrespectful because right. everybody like people aren't better or worse based on their title no, so the fact that he saw a black woman and thought i can just shove papers at her that offended me first and foremost but it never occurred to him that i was a lawyer so then when we all had to go around and introduce ourselves like hi i'm erica harold graduated from harvard law school i could see the look in his eyes and i, I thought good i'm glad you feel embarrassed you should feel embarrassed and next time treat people with respect that's right and i often find that in court judges are willing to give certain groups of people more latitude to advocate for their clients and to cut other people off. So I had a, a very contested case recently where I was representing a African-American woman who the judge was being really disrespectful to. And every time I was trying to advocate for, for my client, he kept cutting me off and being disrespectful. And finally, it got so egregious that by the end of it, he actually apologized for how many times he had interrupted me and cut me off. But those are some of the barriers that I think women of color and lawyers of color have to encounter and figure out how to navigate because there's two levels to it. It's one, the way it makes you feel personally, but two, it affects the way you can actually represent your clients. And to me, it's really unfair for a client to not get their best interest and their best day in court simply because of systemic bias. I want to just ask you, just touching on that uh, same subject right there, when that situation happens in real time and a judge continues to cut you off and, and you feel like this is, this is just on me. What can you do? Because that is, I mean, that's the judge. Right. And you're the attorney and you're representing uh, your client and you have to do everything you can. That's in the best interest of the client. You don't want to make the judge even more angry right. or whatever the case is. So like, what can you do? It seems like an extremely difficult situation to be in. What, what can you do? It, it's very challenging because you can be held in contempt of court if you don't comply with what the judge says. And that certainly doesn't help you and it doesn't help your client. 
that particular hearing, um, I knew I was right on the law. And I knew that the judge wanted to rule against my client, but I knew that I was right on the law. And so in the legal system, there's the, the appeals process. And so I knew that if the judge ruled against me, I would appeal. But I wanted the judge to know that I would appeal because judges do not like to be over, have their decision overturned. So what I said to the judge very calmly, I said, Your Honor, you don't have the discretion to rule against my client because this was an issue about who is entitled to be a trustee. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of disputes about wills, estates, and trusts. And I said, I cited the statute and I read it aloud because there's a court reporter that's taking this down. And I was essentially thinking, I am preparing this for appeal. And I, so that when an appellate court looks at this, if we go there, they're going to say, no, this judge clearly disregarded the law. And so I said, this is the statute. This is the rule. This is what the law says you are required to do. He goes, are you telling me that I don't have the discretion to rule against your client? <laughs> I said, I am your honor. The law is very clear here. And I, you know, I tried to keep my voice even. I tried to keep the edge out I, because I was really thinking to myself, you have to remain calm. You, you have to take any of your personal feelings out of this. Right. Make the record clean for your clients. So you can win on appeal if you have to. And that judge looked to me and goes, well, then I'm going to rule in your favor. <laughs> Are we kids? And what he's going and on here? About it. <laughs> hey, but I think one of the common things that I have learned, both kind of being bullied myself in high school, being in that arena of pageantry and politics, and then in the law, is that you have to be able to compartmentalize to the extent possible your personal feelings so that you can remain as effective as possible in the moment. And then after that moment, go fight to change the system. But always remember what your job is in that moment. If I tried to take on the judge and the system in that moment, my client would have lost. But I'm involved on these committees and commissions because we have the ability to advocate for rule changes to hold to try to change the system. So be compartmentalizing in the moment, but then use that to fuel change afterwards. Can I can I sneak in some free lawyer advice? Can I ask a question? <laughs> well, so I have to say, like I can give general advice. There's yeah, no attorney. General plan. advice. No, general <laughs> I have advice. To, I, as a lawyer, we have to say all those caveats. General advice. Um, one thing I noticed, especially in the past like year or two, um, you know, especially in the minorities, I mean, and you know, us people who are others, we don't have wills and trusts. Um, yes. So, what's some? I guess some something that because I want to complete that this year. So maybe what's something that I need to definitely make sure I do, or maybe some alarming things of you don't need that or don't do that. People, people should absolutely get wills because I think people think, well, if I'm not a millionaire, why do I need a will? Well, you do want a to protect what assets you do have, but you also want to have your affairs in order so that if the worst case scenario happens and you do pass away, you want your family to be able to quickly figure out, okay, these, these were the assets, these were the liabilities, mm -hmm. th these, are, these were the accounts. So the first thing I would say is most law firms have on their website, if you they have wills, states, and trusts, they give you a checklist of 
things to look for, documents to get in order, get go to those sites because they're free and you can just go through those checklists and get those documents all in one place. And then if you come prepared, you can seek a lawyer to help you put together a will and it'll be a lot cheaper and more cost effective because right. you will have already taken those steps. But being able to say who's going to be in charge of your assets. If you have children, you want to say who you want to be the guardian. So there are lots of things to think about in terms of where you are in life, who you want to be able to make decisions. Another thing I would say is think about power of attorney and healthcare, healthcare power of attorney. If something should happen to you in a medical situation, who do you want to be the person to make those decisions on your behalf? So those are things just to think about and and to be and to view them as empowering as opposed to scary. Because I think a, a lot of people think, I don't want to think about that. I mean, I talked to somebody about needing to get a will. They're like, what are you trying to say? Do you know something I don't know? <laughs> no, I don't know anything. <laughs> Nobody's suggesting that, but I do know that just having those conversations and thinking about who you would want to make decisions on your behalf and how you would want your affairs to be managed, that should be actually a freeing experience as opposed to um, nerve wracking. Thank you. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, it's the A Square podcast. We, uh, we definitely appreciate you. That's number one mm -hmm. for coming on here. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank um, you. And uh, we definitely gonna continue to support you as well, for sure. Thank you, thank you. And thank you for giving me this opportunity and congratulations on everything that you're doing because you. we have pride in Champaign-Urbana. So Champaign-Urbana will always be claiming both of you. Yes, um, sir, that's right. <laughs> what, whatever happens, we're gonna say, we knew you first and we claim you first. So <laughs> congratulations on everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank How can you. people reach you? Maybe they might have some questions or follow you. You know, hopefully you don't mute them, you know, so. <laughs> our, our listeners, our listeners are pretty nice people, I would say. Well, and I would say I, I don't mute people for honest disagreement. Okay, if you good. use words that like if you call me out of my name, you'll be muted. Right. If you say negative things about people I love, you'll be muted. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I love honest uh, disagreement. I'm very passionate about college sports. So if you engage with me and you root against fighting a Illini, then I'm going to bring the heat towards you. But, <laughs> but you can reach me at Erica at EricaHerald.com, E-R-I-K-A at E-R-I-K-A-H-A-R-O-L-D.com. That's my email address. And then you can find me on social media platforms. Cool. Absolutely. Thank well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, have a wonderful weekend. You too.